Hello and welcome Behind the Marquee, the podcast where we talk about everything that's going on inside and outside the world of art house and independent cinema, specifically at the Michigan State Theater. We're in the downtown Ann Arbor Library recording this for you, and I am joined by two guests who also work at the Michigan State. Please tell us who you are and what you do. Hey there, my name is Nadim Persigosh-Mass, and I am one of the managers at the State Theater. Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Griffith. Uh, I work in development as sponsorship assistant for the Michigan Theater Foundation. You've probably seen Jonathan's work around on the street. He's designed many of our posters. You, it's been a while since you've, you've you've been on once to talk about Mirai, right? I was, yeah. yeah yep, that was the last time I was on the podcast. That was, yeah, your first and last time you were on the yes, podcast. Yeah, and so it is exciting to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. <laughs> I'm really pumped to be here. What was the last poster that you designed for us? <laughs> well, coincidentally, it was for our anime series that we had yeah. earlier this year in the winter. We did mm-hmm. an Icons of Anime series uh, that went from January to April, and yeah. I got to do all sorts of really fun designs for that, uh, sort of doing uh, some... Uh, ensemble posters with characters from Akira yeah. and Your Name and Spirited Away. And I got to do some solo posters for Kiki's and mm-hmm. uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, for those who don't know, and um, Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Uh, and I also got to draw some other fun characters from uh, Ninja Scroll, Cowboy Bebop. It was really, really great. That was a great series. Yeah, yeah we had, we had a, so good. a terrific response all around from that series. Yeah, it was excellent. I, I was really thrilled to... I don't know. I, I never have really had a lot of opportunities to see a lot of those movies on the big screen. So uh, mm-hmm. just uh, as a fan, man, it was it was most excellent. Yes, yes. Uh, but today we are not talking about anime. No. We are talking about <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's been playing for a few weeks at the Michigan on 35 millimeter. We've all seen it uh, at least once. Uh, just let's just start our your our overall takeaways from the movie. What what was your what was your first reaction walking out of the theater? I guess and my first reaction walking out of the theater was aw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> should yeah. we should we say that this is spoilers or let's, no spoilers? Let's talk a little bit without spoilers, and then okay. at the end, let's get into that territory a little. Okay. Bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my reaction to the ending Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is redacted. Uh, you'll hear the reaction at the end of the episode. No, I really liked it. Yeah, uh, I I really really enjoyed it, and I uh, I saw it uh, like when we opened it a few weeks ago, and it's just gotten better and better in my mind. Yeah, I would agree. I I especially walked into it. I have a my opinion of Tarantino is mixed at best. I don't quite get into his stylized violence uh, like most people. I don't really get into his joy of showing violence mm-hmm. as much. I like his I like his earlier stuff a little bit more uh, than I liked Django or or Inglorious Bastards. So I was a little bit I was unsure of how I was going to think of it but i overall i really really enjoyed this movie i'm also like i i keep saying i was pretty much the the target audience for this movie like really (laughs) into the 60s and that whole aesthetic and just Mm -hmm. really interested in hollywood and movies in general so i did really like this one but it is a lot different than than what he has done in the past jonathan you saw the movie the you saw it just a couple of days ago, I right? Did, You've seen yeah. the most recently of yes, all of us. Yes. Yeah. Well, what, what's what? I'm sure that it's still stewing in your mind. Oh, a little indeed. Bit. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of had a a roulette wheel of, yeah. of, of many, many emotions. Like uh, so many 
high points uh, for a Tarantino film and some of the the lowest lows in my opinion, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, I wanted, because that's why I was so excited to have you on, because we, we've talked a little bit about it already off mic, but uh, you were, were definitely not the target audience for this movie. No. <laughs> uh, so for our, our listening audience, like I have little to no knowledge of the era <laughs> that it was supposed to represent. Um, I mean... I barely even knew who Sharon Tate was, yeah. to be quite honest. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> let's, largely let's, unfamiliar. Let's get into the Bruce Lee stuff right All away. right, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you might have all uh, heard about this on the internet. Famously, there is a a scene about midway through yeah, the film. Yeah, something about that. Yeah, yeah, where the character played by Brad Pitt reminisces about a time on set. Uh, which ultimately led, in part, to him not getting work anymore regularly as a stuntman. Mm -hmm. And in this recollection of his, he sort of uh, gets into a conflict (laughs) with uh, legendary martial arts action star Bruce Lee on the set of The Green Hornet. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot about it that has sort of struck people as controversial. Um, <laughs> it's sort of uh, many different facets of his portrayal, I yeah. think, in fact, are, are what people are a little bit upset about. Um, so is it is it kind of spoilery to no. sort of unfold? I, especially okay. since this, this yeah. has been getting a lot of press. Yeah, yeah. So in this scene, um, there's it's sort of like a waiting area for, for some of the cast and some yeah. of the extras and crew. And um, Bruce Lee is just sort of talking himself up in sort of a... uh, He's being very cocky. Very cocky. And it's sort of satirizing heavily on on a lot of the, the sort of famous sound clips we're all familiar with. Like, you know, if you guys have all seen... Be like water, you know, like yeah. think of that, but just dialed up to a ridiculous <laughs> degree. Um, and this sort of uh, catches the ear of Brad Pitt's character, mm-hmm. and they uh, sort of uh, things escalate, <laughs> and then they agree to to a duel yeah. to, to see who who is the best yeah. <laughs> at fighting. <laughs> um, and so. A lot of people are kind of mad, first of all, about um, their perceived outcome of this conflict, which I think, for me, is kind of ridiculous. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't really care who wins. Like, that's not (laughs) really the thing that sort of uh, really just worked up my ire about this scene. Um, So uh, just to sort of elaborate a little further, they fight, and um, Bruce Lee gets a really good hit in. Um, and then sort of the next bout of the fight, uh, Brad Pitt's character ends up snatching Bruce Lee by the leg <laughs> and just slamming him into a car with seemingly superhuman strength. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just puts this massive dent <laughs> this, into the car. Yeah, this comic, this cartoonish dent in the car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but this sort of... Uh, catches Bruce Lee up to speed. And so for their final round, they have sort of an agreement that they're going to do a three-round fight. For their final round, they start sort of trading blows, sort Mm -hmm. of like in a really stylish, cool, like kind of kung fu-looking exchange. Um, And then it's abruptly stopped by the film's crew. Before it can finish. Before it can finish. Um, Because, uh, yeah, because... 
Bruce is the, you know, the talent. And they don't want him fighting and yeah. getting injured <laughs> before he has to go film his scenes for Green Hornet. So so people are upset, yeah, that, that Bruce Lee comes off as yep. a jerk and yes. that and that he gets uh he gets handled quite easily by yes. by, by, by by Brad Pitt. And it's something again. I the the actor has come to the defense of the scene. The actor that plays Bruce Lee as saying that just like give Bruce Lee ten more seconds and he, and he would have yeah. won that fight. Yeah. So it is. I, I don't think it's as easy uh, to say that uh, it's as bad as it was. Definitely in that respect. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Because yeah. I'll, I'll I'll sort of launch into. So the thing that really bugged me about that scene, um, and it sort of is in contrast with the rest of the film. So. Um, you know, the the film is often described as sort of Tarantino's fan fiction of this era. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of a love letter to it, if you will. And there's a lot of prominent figures from that era featured in the film. Obviously, Sharon Tate yeah. famously being one of them. Uh, there's another scene, scene <laughs> with Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people are just represented with sort of this um, really just like endearing reverence you know you can tell like Tarantino loves these people and he sort of elevates them to this almost like godlike level I mean just the way that the scenes with Sharon Tate I mean like they're simply just following her around but it all seems yeah. so near angelic and mm-hmm. like you it's and like you you can really feel that Tarantino is just so engaged with this character and he's mm-hmm. definitely trying to you know put forward his his point that like man I love Sharon Tate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then we get to this scene with Bruce Lee, and he's a total jerk. Like yeah. he's just the worst human being. Like he he's just played off like I don't want to get too vulgar here, yeah. but he he's the worst. Yeah. He's the worst. <laughs> like, and he's the only celebrity, correct me if I'm wrong, in the film that sort of gets this treatment. Everybody else seems Aside from the Manson family. Oh uh, yeah. well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would hope. Of that, course. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope, but that. He, but it, like, not as much as Charlie Manson though. I mean, they, like, like yeah. Charles Manson, Manson is big. That character, that actor, really makes a cameo in the movie. He's yes. not really in yeah. it at all. And if I didn't know anything about Charles Manson and my knowledge was based solely off of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'd say, man, that Charles Manson, what a nice guy. <laughs> 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 but obviously, yeah. I know otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thoughts, you guys? Uh, what are you feeling? So on the Bruce Lee when scene? I first saw that scene, I interpreted that entire scene actually as a fantasy, a yeah. fantasy of Brad Pitt's character. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one who had that opinion. And it was only afterwards actually talking to you, uh, like later that night, that you, you interpreted it as a flashback. Right, to yeah. Time. Um, so I don't really know... What was the intention? I again, I I want to see it again to yeah. like see if it was supposed to be ambiguous, if it was actually a, a real event that occurred, right. or just a fantasy. But it seemed like a sort of microcosm of the whole movie, as you said, like a fan fiction mm-hmm. of the '60s in Hollywood, and it would seem like a, if not a fantasy, then a sort of reinterpretation of the actual events of what occurred through. Brad Pitt's character's lens. Yeah. So sure, maybe maybe he was on a movie with Bruce Lee, maybe they got in a fight. But the fact that he like slammed Bruce Lee's body into a car and it left a dent <laughs> the size of like like a, like a boulder. Yeah, it was yeah. Like, as if he had thrown a boulder into the car. It seems a a little too 
uh, reinterpreted. Yeah. And I think that also applies to the movie as a whole. Like, it's a reinterpretation uh, through the lens of someone who wants to imagine things as different than what actually occurred. Yeah, the, the, the whole the whole setup of the movie is that it's a fantasy, once upon yeah, a time. exactly. It's so a it's, fairy tale. It, it's mm-hmm. a fairy tale. It's hard to figure out how this exists in real life. It is kind of hard to figure. Like, it, what was was that something that actually happened or was that Tarantino playing on the fantasy-like mm-hmm. nature of the film? It's hard to, hard to pick that out. There's a a balancing act that he really uses in the movie. I think if anyone, uh, like like you said, Bruce Lee is the only celebrity who in the movie is representative as a very arrogant, uh, maybe excluding Rick Dalton, the main character, (laughs) he's kind of like a blowhard himself. But Bruce Lee really comes off pretty bad. And I would imagine that Quentin Tarantino, who is so obsessed with the 60s and Hollywood and all these celebrities, would be the last person on earth to misrepresent Bruce Lee in that exactly. way. Right? Like he can't, he, he must know that like Bruce Lee in the movie talks about how, how he could beat up Muhammad Ali, but everyone knows that Bruce Lee was like a huge fan of Muhammad Ali and would never mm-hmm. say that kind of thing. Right. And I would imagine that Quentin Tarantino would also know that information. It, so it just seems to me like a deliberate misrepresentation of Bruce Lee. Like, a, re- a reinterpretation in the negative way, in the same way that they reinterpreted this whole Manson sort of thing in a in a slightly different way too. Yeah, yeah, and he, he and he does love Bruce Lee. Like Bruce Lee shows up as inspiration for uh, for many of his films. Oh yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, yeah. Kill, Kill Bill. Bill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as far as the rest of the the interpret the interpretations of characters, like. Sharon Tate is what people have been talking a lot about. And as you said, she's she really shows up as this angelic. Yeah, an idol. An idol. And I uh, there's parts that I really enjoy about that. And I understand that there's a lot of... I understand where the criticism comes from. She's much more of a theme mm-hmm. of the film than she is an actual character. Mm-hmm. Um, she shows... You know, the, I love the scene. And I think that... Uh, Tarantino re-edited uh, a scene, uh, extra footage of her into the film after he screened the film at Cannes because oh, yeah. people were saying, uh, people were already complaining, uh, criticizing the film for his uh, not giving Margot Robbie enough lines as Sharon Tate. So he put in this really great scene of her picking up a hitchhiker as she's mm. going down the highway. Oh, wow. And then I th- th- that is what, uh, that's like my favorite scene of hers that's in the movie because it really, he's showing what the time of 1969 mm-hmm. was where this is like the last moment in time where you could pick up a hitchhiker on the, or at least it was acceptable to pick up hitchhikers on yeah. the road. She shows up, she picks her up, where are you going? I think she's, uh, she, Sharon Tate says, I'm going to, to, to the Bruin Theater or something like that. Or she's going to Westwood. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, that's great. And then they pick her up and they drive. And then they seem to, like, to, to make like really good friends with each other. I think Sharon Tate gives her a hug as she's <laughs> leaving the car. It's just a really nice, beautiful scene. And just, uh, re- he's really setting the tone of the movie of what the, this time was. And then she's, she goes into the theater and she's watching The Wrecking Crew. And what I love most about that scene is that she's watching... Sharon Tate on screen, the real Sharon yeah. Tate on screen. They didn't put her, and Tarantino shows in this movie that he's willing to put, he's really, he's willing to digitally put Leo DiCaprio in a classic footage. He's really to, mm-hmm. he, to, to like put him over Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. He puts mm-hmm. Leo inside that, or he puts Rick Dalton inside The Great Escape. 
And but for the wrecking crew, she's watching Sharon Tate on the screen. She's not watching Margot Robbie on the screen. And I thought that was really beautiful because it seems Tarantino wants to show you that he wants to show you Sharon Tate as an actress, not Sharon Tate as a murder victim, as Mm -hmm. she's really remembered today, unfortunately. Sure. So I don't know where I was going with that. So I was going (laughs) to I was going to ask you guys a question. So maybe for folks who are listening and for folks someone like myself who sort of approached this this movie not being very knowledgeable of the era. Um, Sharon Tate, is she more famous for being a victim of the Manson family than she is for being in films? I think definitely. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so, yeah, I, I appreciate, I, I understand the grossness that's in that of, of, of people saying you're, you're putting Sharon Tate as she's, she's an object in this film and not a character mm-hmm. and I understand that and I see that but I also think he's doing a lot for the memory of Sharon Tate as well I don't know do you have thoughts about that I think it's uh, like you said earlier Tarantino makes Sharon Tate into a sort of idol in this movie yeah uh, I don't know if that's a deliberate choice or anything but because today we really know her more for what happened to her than for any of her acting roles. I, I had never seen a movie with Sharon Tate in it yeah, before. Yeah, same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what really she stands for is, like like you said, Nick, she stands for the end of this era when you could just pick up a hitchhiker in Hollywood mm-hmm. and make friends with them. Mm-hmm. And I think by preserving her image on screen when Margot Robbie goes to watch her in the theater, mm-hmm. he's trying to preserve this time period in the same way that this movie is trying to do mm-hmm. by, I, I mean, I'm, I'm dancing around the ending here. Can I talk? Yeah, about let's, uh, well, uh, <laughs> let's just tell the, tell the listeners we're going to start getting into spoilers. Pause it right now. If you don't want to hear it, go see the movie at the Michigan, <laughs> come back to this. Yeah. Go. Okay. So two and a half <laughs> hours later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, if you don't know already, Tarantino rewrites history and does not kill Sharon Tate. Um, in fact, her would-be murders are stopped by the hero, Cliff Booth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what he's really trying to set up, what Tarantino is really trying to set up here is a preservation of that sort of magical era and time yeah. when you could pick up a hitchhiker, make friends with them, go on screen, watch a ridiculous movie with Dean Martin and Sharon Tate in it. <laughs> like the the snatches of that movie you see are like so silly in a way that absolutely does not exist anymore. Yeah. yeah like and slapstick quality. A yeah. lot of people determine that night, I think it was August 9th, 1969. It was today. As, oh, it's today. Yeah. It's oh, today. Oh, get out. Yeah. Yeah. 50 years to the day. Wow. Yeah, so we're recording 50 this. years ago, that yeah. is the exact day when the like the magical hippie era died completely mm-hmm. because I think so many so many uh, older people during that time were so eager for an excuse to stop the counterculture, mm-hmm. to stop free love, to stop drugs, to stop 
progress, really. Mm -hmm. That's what they wanted to stop. And they used this awful murder as an excuse to say, okay, all hippies are awful. Drugs are bad. Love is bad. We need uh, need to return to tradition. That's really what we need. And I think the transformation that occurs in this movie by the end is that Rick Dalton, who is clinging on to tradition for so long, realizes that inevitably there's going to be progress yeah he can't stop that no one can stop that like the one of my favorite scenes in the movie is uh the scene with him and this little girl actress this amazing Amazing. actress and he's reading this book about like a old cowboy who like (laughs) just can't do it anymore he's not the best anymore like it's such an obvious metaphor is it Uh breezy yeah yeah yeah. i forget it's it's really good and then he like uh then he does a scene with this little girl and he like does all these new Hollywood things like he does method acting and improvisation and like all this crazy stuff that he never thought he would ever do. But he was encouraged to do it because he realizes that the only way forward is by changing. So I think when Tarantino changes history in this movie, what he really wants to change is the awful trend towards, uh, I mean, fascism that yeah. this country has taken in the past 50 years Mm -hmm. so i think like changing history in this sense is just asking for a little bit more time in that summer of love yeah 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 that's that's that that that, uh, yeah you said that perfectly yeah i was gonna say that was beautiful (laughs) very well put i'm like rather speechless over here i'm like well podcast over you just basically like encapsulated like the beautiful meaning of that film yeah the the and he yeah, the, he shows. I think it's, it's yeah. It's not coincidental that he plays this relationship between Brad Pitt and Leo so perfectly. Mm-hmm. This is such a great. It's movie is such a great buddy comedy almost. And you're watching. You know, Leo is an act uh, is an actor, and Brad Pitt is his stunt double, who has become his gopher in a way. Uh, this he's he's the guy who you know he, he he pushes Leo's luggage through the airport. He he fixes the antenna on his roof. He just does whatever. And th- the entire movie, you're kind of expecting or waiting for that other shoe to drop a little bit. You're like it, in in the way that you've seen these type of relationships in movies before. At least I was kind of expecting there to be a to be a moment where Brad Pitt is just like I'm done. I can't mm. do this for you anymore. We're like we're, our, we're friends, but I can't do this for you anymore. I'm uh, I have to be my own man. I just uh, I but that that doesn't happen. They're 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 friends through and through to the very end, and mm. it's there's such a great moment. The very it's the, the the close to the the very end of the movie. Brad Pitt is being wheeled away in the ambulance, mm. and then the door closes, and Leo kind of like he thinks, and he runs up and he knocks on the window and just says, "Cliff, you're a good friend." And then I think he gives him like a thumbs up or something. No, Brad Pitt. So in, in the beginning of the movie, Al Pacino says to Cliff Booth, uh, Al Pacino's character is, uh, what is it, Marvin Schwartz? Yeah. He says, you're a really good friend, speaking yeah. to Rick Dalton. And Brad Pitt says, well, I try. And then at yeah. the end, he says the same thing when Rick says, I didn't pick you're that a good up. friend, Cliff. And Brad yeah. Pitt, like looking almost dead, just gives him a thumbs up. Yeah. And says, I try. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't pick up that. That was a yeah. recurring line. Yeah, so I was hoping this was something we could maybe discuss a little bit Mm because we're kind of touching upon uh, some things that I really liked about this film, which were some of the 
tonal departures that we sort of come to expect from Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Um, And this quality that we're talking about right now, especially, there's a lot of really endearing stuff in this movie between his characters, which I am not used to. I've seen all of Tarantino's films, and it's, you know, a lot of... uh, ultraviolence and, and tough mm-hmm. talk. A lot of people betraying each other. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But we're given this tale that's in part about friendship, yeah. which mm-hmm. is really great. And he does it so well. Um, and also, uh, I was thinking this morning, I, I saw a quote uh, uh, from Tarantino talking about his purported 10th and final film mm-hmm. might be horror uh, because he was so inspired by the scene where Cliff visits Span Ranch? Spawn. Spawn Ranch. Uh, yeah. Spawn yeah. Ranch, yeah. And because his editor told him how like near horrific that scene oh, was yeah, in execution. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's kind of inspired by that. Um but I just really admired a lot of those qualities about the film, how I was sort of uh take like it was definitely was a lot of my expectations were subverted. Yeah. Uh, that that's what the whole film is, right? It's like yeah. it's a build up of tension, but then it goes in a completely different direction yeah. than what you thought. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, especially, yeah, the, the, the scene at the Spawn Ranch, uh, that was probably one of the most thrilling moments yeah, of, of that absolutely. movie. Absolutely. Uh, especially uh, because also given the expectation of Tarantino, characters can die whenever he wants them to. I mean, yeah. I, I was kind of ex- yeah. I was like I was expect I was like he's going into the the that house to see George. And I have to be prepared that this might be the last time I see Brad Pitt in this movie. <laughs> he's he's a, he's with the Manson family right now, and I don't know what George is going to look like inside yeah. that house or how Cliff is going to react. But <laughs> this could go down real quick here. So I just want to say real quick too. I know we're in spoiler territory right now, but can we please not spoil the outcome of yeah, the, of the spotlight? Because the <laughs> the payoff to that tension is so incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one of my favorite parts of the movie. Maybe. Yeah, I think both for both of them, my I think that was Leo's best performance I've seen him in. Uh, in my opinion, he's done a lot of great performances. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but when he's acting while acting, <laughs> and he he's yeah. adds so many layers to that. That's character. something. Yeah. And then layers that aren't even really brought up really in the movie. Like we were talking yesterday, I'm a little skeptical that 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 character can read. <laughs> right. And, and that what, Rick Dalton. Uh, Rick, no, yeah, Rick, uh, yeah, Rick Dalton. <laughs> Uh, it's never really brought up, but you know when, he, when he's talking about the book, uh, and he's—I I think that he—he he at least has trouble reading. I think because okay. because she asks him what the book's about, and he basically just gives the story of his life. I'm not—I'm I'm a little <laughs> skeptical that yeah. that's what that book was really about. I think he just l- opens it up to make him look smart, and then he—you never—and then I know this is something actors do, but you never see him reading a script. All of his lines are always recorded, and then—and then he just—that's how he learns them. So, but it, again, it's the, um, uh, it's something to something to think about. And I mean, it, it, it's never brought up. I just think that that was like a touch that that Leo added may have added to that character. If if, if Cliff is always nearby, like, yeah, what does he need to read for? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Brad Pitt. I love seeing Brad Pitt as a supporting character. He's a fine lead. He, he makes a good leading man. But when Brad Pitt is really when he give, he gives a character that he can dive into. Like that, like I was I'm thinking back to his 
uh, performance in Burn After Reading where he's a supporting <laughs> character. He's yeah. so funny in that movie. And then, oh, like the Oceans movies, mm-hmm. the little touches he adds to his character. Uh, I think he makes such a great supporting character. Even under Tarantino's lead as the uh, one of the supporting characters in Glorious Bastards. Yeah. It's so incredible. <laughs> one of my favorite characters in the film, for yeah. sure. Um, before we start wrapping up the discussion, I just want to talk about 35 millimeter. I want to, I, cause I think that you both have probably have different opinions of it. I want to hear you first. Oh, did you, did you see any difference watching in 35 millimeter? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I enjoy that experience for sure. Um, it's, you know, it's definitely one of those things that immediately you notice, you mm-hmm. see sort of the, mm-hmm. the very subtle imperfections, um, mm-hmm. But after a time, when you get a little engrossed in the narrative, it does kind of disappear a little bit. But yeah. I, I do think there is a really there's a there's a neat quality of being like, able to see a film like that. You did notice a difference then, because because yeah. again, as 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 uh, today when we we use this as a huge marketing tool because it's it's so great to see films in thirty five millimeter. It's a rare experience. But then it's also all, you also get the questions. What's the difference? And or like, sure. will I even notice the difference? What is yes. it? Is it? Yeah. So you did. So yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. that you did notice. And the and it, like, it's interesting to think about seeing a film like that to you that's supposed to you know represent an era oh, that yeah. you know wholeheartedly use this format. Like, can you imagine seeing a film like that sort of in like that ultra high definition, like mm-hmm. crisp clarity? Like, I think it lends a lot to the film to be able to watch it with these sort of subtle mm-hmm. imperfections. Yeah. What did you what did what did you think, Nadim? I liked it. I thought it was completely appropriate for the film. Oh yeah, I think it's so cool that we're what we're one of fifty theaters yeah. in, the, yeah. in the country that's yep. even doing this. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. That's really special. I mean, Tarantino is known for being such a film diehard that I yeah. can't imagine watching this movie, <laughs> at least for the first time, in anything other than thirty-five mm-hmm. millimeter, because so it's so important for for not just the film but also the the films within the films. Yeah. Yeah, to look, to look quite right, because mm-hmm. uh, I think if it was projected digitally, the sharpness of digital video is you know great for like Star Wars or something, but I think for a movie like this that is so completely steeped in nostalgia for the '60s, mm-hmm. it's so important to represent it in the same way in a way that you can't really put words to. Yeah, that film does. Yeah. Uh, so if, if if you don't know the difference, like really just a, a quick sum, summarization of what 35 millimeter looks like on screen. It's really the color. The mm-hmm. color is where like the blacks are dark. There's a, a, a richer color contrast. So the blacks are blacker and the, the, you know, blues, reds, greens, they pop more on screen. So what this what this film, what it does for this film is that Tarantino made this, at least he 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 put these characters in costumes and he lit the, the, the film in such a way that one represents the, what the era looked like, what people, what the fashion was, what people dressed like, but also what movies looked like in 1969. So Mm -hmm. he really made this movie, like you're watching a movie that could be, that could have been made in that same year. So, you know, there's like, Sharon Tate's when they, they they go to like the Playboy Mansion in the movie. Sharon Tate is wearing this like yellow. I don't even know what you call it, but the the the, the color of that of that skirt that she's wearing just it, boom. It's just it it explodes on the screen. Especially it, it's the the scene is set at night, so it's just it's it's outstanding how some of the colors look in this film. That's really that's really why you should see it on thirty five millimeter. Mm-hmm. It's just you're not going to see those colors in any other way. 
I think seeing it on a big screen too is important. Mm-hmm. And I think the scene where Sharon Tate goes to the cinema is a good reason, uh, yeah. is a good example of why that's important. Because mm-hmm. it's it's so easy to miss things when you're watching a movie on a smaller screen. Yeah, it's so easy to. Uh, th- well, there's a sense of scale that you just don't get when you're watching things on a smaller oh, screen. Yeah. Uh, people, I think, underestimate the power of scale to to bring you into a world and mm-hmm. convince you of what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. Especially when they when they're exploring the Hollywood sets, mm-hmm. like there there's a, a scale to be seen. That yeah. It's like when they're like wheeling away giant facades, and you're seeing just the epicness of of this set that he Tarantino recreated Hollywood Boulevard, mm-hmm. that and that it just looks spectacular. Yeah, yeah. I read a kind of fun fact the other day about <clears throat> how it took a lot of convincing to get many of those businesses to readopt their facade oh, from yeah. the era. And uh, eventually they got everyone's permission so as to be able to recreate, you know, a lot of the environments. And after the filming was done, a lot of the businesses did not take oh, the facade down because they actually like it better than what they have yeah, now. Yeah, of course. That's <laughs> terrific. Yeah. yeah. I had I had a bit of a, a nostalgia trip. I, I, I spent uh, like a, a summer in Los Angeles to 2013 for an internship. And uh, I just lived like a couple blocks from the Bruin Theater, so that was oh, uh, nice. that was nice. I, she walked up to him like, "Oh, I know that place." <laughs> and then seeing her like when he explored the space, I was, yeah, that that I know that I know that street corner she's at. It did not look like that, yeah. but I, I know that street corner. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. Um, before we wrap up this episode, we're going to get to our movie magic moments of the week. And this is where we talk about something that we've seen recently that we can recommend to you and something to, as we say, re- reminded us why we love movies. So who would like to start? Either of you. Me? Uh, I can start. Yeah. Um, actually I just rewatched Jackie Brown. Oh, perfect. Tarantino's third movie. Um, and it's, Maybe the one that's most similar to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm-hmm. because it's very laid back. It's very sweet. Mm-hmm. It's very nostalgic and uh, ponderous. Yeah. And steeped in like the way that people bond together. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, the, if, if you haven't seen Jackie Brown, it's a great movie. Go see it. But there. I'm I okay. I'll, I'm just gonna say at the end there is a kiss which is so sweet and lovely, but so melancholy at the same time. And you wouldn't think that the the director who made Michael Madsen like jump and dance around while listening to Stuck in the Middle of the Room, like <laughs> cutting a cop's ear off. It's crazy to think that the same director did both of these movies. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's beautiful. I highly recommend it. Yeah, we were talking, Jonathan and I were talking about that movie yesterday. Just uh, uh, Robert De Niro's character is, is pretty endearing in that movie. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> I, I think I heard that the De Niro, I think, originally wanted to do Max Cherry. Okay. Yeah, but Tarantino really wanted Robert Forster for the role. Uh-huh. And so he offered him this other role of Lewis instead. <laughs> and I think, like, De Niro's perfect in it because De Niro is, like, obviously a megastar. Yeah. But in this movie, he's so, like, low-key, laid back, <laughs> barely on screen. He'd barely even, like, recognize him yeah. if he didn't know him that well. Yeah. Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. Check it out. <laughs> Jonathan, what have, you, what have you got? All right. <clears throat> so 
once a year, I revisit one of my, my favorite films of all time. And it's, uh, it was determined in a conversation I had a couple summers ago that it would be my Desert Island pick for the one film that I would take that I'd get to watch for the rest of my life. And that is uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Oh. Um, it's one of my favorite movies ever. And I watch it at least once a year, which I did recently. And uh, it's every, it encapsulates everything I love about movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an adaptation of Brian Lee O'Malley's series of comics. Uh, from the mid 2000s, and it's a film by Edgar Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, for all you guys who are familiar with uh, the Cornetto trilogy and uh, Baby Driver, and uh, man, it just so wholly embraces like the absurd and the fantastical, and it just doesn't care, doesn't even bother itself with trying to explain to you why the lead character is such a piece of garbage and a total and complete <laughs> slacker, but at the same time is one of the best martial artists in all of Canada. Um, man, coupled with that, just some razor sharp humor and amazing sort of punkish music yeah. by Beck. It is easily and a million fantastic cameos by several actors brandon ralph yeah. uh, chris evans <laughs> a lot larson. of superheroes yeah Lee larson um jason schwartzman um you guys if you haven't seen scott pilgrim vs. the world just do yourself a favor and watch it it's just it's bliss yeah that that movie has probably my 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 go-to i i probably yeah that movie has a line that that probably my most reference the the Reference I use the most is that when Chris Evan looks at his phone, says, that, "That's actually hilarious." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, me and me and my friends were uh, um, can often be heard saying because we have a lot of other friends who always need to know what something comes from because they don't believe that you can come up with something original. <laughs> so we always quote uh, May. I forget her last May, name. Yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, Scott Pilgrim says a really cheesy one-liner, and uh, or sorry, her character says a, one, a yeah. cheesy one-liner, and Scott Pilgrim stupidly goes, "What's that from?" She goes, "My brain." <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, mine. So before, this, uh, appropriately enough, as we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I did a little bit of homework before I, I saw I saw this movie. I had to watch like some of uh, the the films that he's referencing in the movie. I watched some westerns, Red River, uh, Wild Bunch. You know, I watched Jacques Demy's Model Shop, but I actually watched The Wrecking Crew. I found oh, wow. I found oh. I found The Wrecking Crew at awesome. the at the at the library. So I went home. I watched that uh, as we just we discussed a little bit of it already. It stars Dean Martin uh, as Matt Helm. And this yeah. movie was the fourth in a Matt Helms series. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So Dean Martin, yeah, he, this is his his fourth and last movie as Matt Helm. It's kind of like a James Bond, American James Bond ripoff, but just uh, a little bit sillier, a little bit more 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 focusing on comedy mm-hmm. than the James Bond movies were. But he's still like the suave spy, womanizing secret agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Dean Martin. <laughs> it's Dean Martin. <laughs> So this film, what amazed me most about this film was I didn't really go into it with many with high expectations. I had never heard of the movie before, and I, sus- I suspected that there was a reason for that. Um, but I came out of it pretty amazed. I had so much fun watching it because really, the as we've already discussed, the colors, the colors of this movie are fantastic. And 
there's one specific moment where Sharon, I think Sharon Tate's character is trying on different clothes. And for each one she puts on, like the lighting in the room changes to a different color. She has like a bunch oh, of cool. switches. So she puts on like a, a <laughs> green dress and she's like hits the green switch and the room turns completely green. Mm. And then she like turns and she puts on a red dress, hits the red switch. The room becomes completely red, just like washed in red. The movie, uh, every scene has a different color palette. And it was um, it was just great to see uh, that this came at a time where directors were experimenting with Technicolor, mm-hmm. and it was it was a joy to watch. It was a lot of fun. So check out the Wrecking Crew. I uh, guess as I said, you can find it at the Ann, Ar- Ann Arbor District Library on DVD. So check it out. Was it as I, delightful as the? audience and once upon a time in hollywood finds it i think so yeah it was uh i I mean it's not maybe it's not laugh out loud funny but it's silly you'll have a smile on your face as you're watching that okay i guarantee that and then some really uh, bruce lee was the uh stunt that's why he's in once upon a time in hollywood he was the stunt coordinator for what really yeah yeah yeah. oh my gosh he's he's not in the movie but you see a quick reference to in once upon a time in hollywood where he's teaching her karate that's right Uh because there's that scene they show with sharon tate where she sort of Mm-hmm. faces down with uh, some sort of intruder in yeah. your hotel room or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bruce Lee was the stunt coordinator. Oh my gosh, movie. awesome. And it's also the first appearance of Chuck Norris in the movie. Get out. He plays, uh, he plays like a lackey of, he, did, he doesn't have any lines. He plays like one of the villain's lackeys. He shows up for maybe like 10 seconds. He, and he was a student of Bruce Lee, so I wonder uh, I'm sure that's if why. that's where they met or if their relationship had already started. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wrecking Crew, as I'll say it again. Thank you both for being uh, on this episode of Behind the Marquee. This is a really great discussion. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks uh, with a new episode. Thank you to the Ann Arbor District Library for letting us record here. Come check them out. Their website, aadl.org. You can find uh, the Michigan State Theater on Facebook. You can send the you can send me an email at btmpod at gmail.com. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you again to Nadim and Jonathan. And thank you for joining us behind the marquee. Hooray! How um, many times have you guys seen it? Okay, Once, yeah, and then I, I, I've jumped into the theater a few times right, to right. watch like bits of it. Um, I always seem to walk in at the same time, though, which kind of frustrates sure. me. I always walk in when Brad Pitt is picking up uh, what's her face, Pussy, from, uh, from <laughs> Pussycat. The, Pussycat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's a that's a funny phenomenon. I find whenever I go to like a theater or something to like change a movie title yeah. sign or something, it's always at the exact same time. So like mm-hmm. we're playing Spider-Man right now, of course. And every single time I walk up to that theater, it's the scene where they're on the ferry, I think, in in London, I think. And, like, the elemental's attacking, and Martin Starr's character just screams, I'm doing my best, Julius! (laughs) 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 That's a good part, too. I always get to see that. That's always it. Every single time.